Alhamdulillah <laughs> وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله عليها نحيا وعليها نموت لا معبود بحق سواه وأشهد أن سيدنا وحبيبنا ونبينا محمدا صلى الله عليه وآله وسلم عبده ورسوله وما كان الله ليعذبهم وأنت فيهم وما كان الله معذبهم وهم يستغفرون من يطع الله ورسوله وأولي الأمر من المؤمنين فلا مضل له ومن يعص الله ورسوله وأولي الأمر من المؤمنين فلا هادي له ومن يتوكل على الله فإن الله على كل شيء قدير أما بعد Dear brothers and sisters It's not a very comfortable position to be located between the meanings unfolding from Allah in real life and in real time on one hand or on one side and then on the other side individuals and communities that have wandered away from Allah thinking that they are the most obedient people on planet earth and by that I mean we the Muslims it's a very difficult position to be in and this is another khutbah that will contribute to understanding why it is difficult. A historical perspective would be helpful. Let's take a couple of ayat from Allah's book. One of these ayat in Surah At-Tawbah says, قُلْ لَنْ يُصِيبَنَا إِلَّا مَا كَتَبَ اللَّهُ لَنَا Say, whatever befalls us, whatever 
is going to happen to us is what Allah has decreed for us. In another ayah, in Surah Al-Nisa, Allah's words are, Allah wa atiyu rasula wa ulil amri minkum. Obey Allah and obey the Messenger and those who are entrusted with authority from among you. These are two ayat, two verses from the Quran that so many of us have recited and listened to so many times. Innumerable. Countless times. Now, let us ingrain ourselves in what happened between understanding the original meaning and the way it is interpreted in the realm, the Muslim realm today. Unfortunately, many Muslims are shrunk, mentally shrunk, to think about Islam just in a personal capacity. The ability and the potential of thinking of our Islamic responsibilities in a social context and beyond that in an organizational manner just escapes the average Muslim mind. And remember, as I said at the beginning, we are being self-critical and it's not comfortable being self-critical. But there has to be a beginning. So just take a look at the political process in what are called democratic societies. They fashion themselves on the basis of freedom. Of course, in many cases, it's controlled freedom. And the way a person becomes the ultimate decision maker most of the times, that person joins a particular political party and works his way through the party and then the party itself runs the gamut of elections and the result of those popular elections that's what they're supposed to be places that particular individual in the executive office whatever the designation of it is Take a look at our own history to begin with. Arabian society during the time of Allah's Prophet, may Allah's peace and blessings be upon him. There were people in the Arabian Peninsula and they were watching what is happening in Mecca and in Al Medina. And they realized a person by the name of Muhammad. Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam began his mission 
saying that he is a prophet and an apostle of the Almighty. And as a result of that, saying that he's a prophet and he's an apostle, as a result of that, he became the ruler. So they wanted to do the same thing. In the prophet's life, there was a person called Al-Aswad Al-Ansi. He claimed to be a prophet and he wanted to rule. After the prophet's rule, during the time of the Khulafa, there was another person by the name of Musaylama Al-Kadhab. He also claimed that he is a prophet. He, he didn't claim that because of any validity. He claimed that because he wanted to reach the highest office in the land. If someone called Muhammad could do something like that, well, let us give it a try. Maybe we can do something like that. And of course, all of their attempts ended up in failure. Now, I want to draw your attention here before I go on. And this is where many minds get confused, whether they are ideological minds or theological minds. This is where they get confused. Our, our thoughts, our thinking ability is not trained on dealing with the issues of power and wealth. Power, wealth, and authority. We simply grow up in an educational and a social milieu that does not help when it comes to thinking about power and how it's distributed or how it is abused, wealth, how it is gained and how it is hoarded, and authority, how it is, how it is acquired and how it is dispensed. We don't think, we're not supposed to think in these areas. I'm, I'm putting in front of you an idea that will help you maybe bypass much of the arguments in your thinking mind. And that is, consider the world that we are living in. No one has power and no one has authority. No one. Not you, not anyone else. Would there be any of these issues that we are grappling with in our real world, in our real time. Would they exist? From the issue of feminism to the issues of famine, from the issues of war to the issues of family life, if there was no one who had power and authority, most of these issues that we argue about and we go to war for would not exist. But the fact of life is there is power in this life. And when I say the word power, I couple it with the word wealth because power and wealth go together. And then there's authority. 
people who want to rule. Now, these issues are included in the many ayahs in the Quran. And this is, I'll go back to my previous, previous idea. When these Arabians during the first generations of Muslims, when they wanted to acquire power by trying to copycat Allah's Prophet, may Allah's peace and blessings be upon him and his forever, they were presented to us as apostates. That's a deviation just using that word is a deviation from what really happened. These were more than the religious word apostate would divulge. They were more or less involved in a power, authority, and wealth triangle. That's where they were. And this is not peculiar to the first generation of Muslims. There are there is ideological apostasy. You see? And this in the secular and Western mind causes a sort a short circuit of thoughts. What do you mean ideological apostasy? Well, that's what it is. No one takes anyone else for task because of their heartfelt beliefs. That is a freedom and a right guaranteed by our creator and maker for everyone. But what impacts us is not theological beliefs. What impacts us are ideological and political decisions. And here, a religious person is supposed to exclude himself from this area. Who said? Where did that come from? I have to arrest my mind because I'm a person of morality. I'm not supposed to think about the evil that is organized around me and around the world. Who? That's, that's, that's nowhere to be found in God's words or in the words of his apostles. So now the conventional and the uncritical Muslim, because he confused the ideological and the political with the theological and the religious, is encountered with an individual Muslim. Let's say we run into a Muslim, born in a Muslim family, and that Muslim decides to become a Christian or a Buddhist or something else. That's his freedom. If that's what he or she decides to do, they have all the freedom and all the right to do that. But what do we have in our, what's called Islamic jurisprudence? We have laws that say a person like that should be executed. Where did this come from? There's no ayah in the Quran that gives the right to a person 
that gives the right to an authority to execute a person just because they changed their religious persuasion. Nothing. Actually, if we go back to the source, the Quran, it says, فَمَنْ شَاءَ فَلْيُؤْمِنْ وَمَنْ شَاءَ فَلْيَكْفُرْ Whoever decides may commit themselves to Allah, and whoever decides may deny Allah. Another one says, لا إك... another, another ayah says, لا إكراه في الدين There's no compulsion in matters of your conviction and faith. But what do they do? They undermine the ayat with a hadith that says, or a so-called hadith that says, من بدل دينه Whoever changes their religion, you kill him. Where did that come from? Does this type of quote that is attributed to the Prophet, does it fit in the Quran, the ayat of the Quran? It, there's a contradiction here between the ayat that I just mentioned, لا إكراه في الدين فمن شاء فليؤمن ومن شاء فليكفر لست عليهم بمسيطر أفأنت تكره الناس حتى يكونوا مؤمنين and many other ayat verses in the Quran that give us and every human being freedom of conviction freedom of belief but then somewhere along the line when hadith literature was written down they interjected among many other hadith, this particular hadith that says, "Man baddala dinahu faqtulu," whoever changes their religion, you kill them. No such thing. That's where, that's how we measure whether a hadith is compatible with the Quran or not compatible with the Quran. And this particular hadith is not compatible with the Qur'an. And this is our problem. We run into these hadiths. One hadith says that the Prophet of Allah, may Allah's peace and blessings be upon him, died and his one piece of armory that he had, a shield, was he had lent it, leased it, or it was leased to him by a Jewish individual in Al-Madina. That's the way it reads. Now think about this just for one moment. How can this be true? How can this hadith that the Prophet had was leased a uh, a weapon from a Jew in Al Medina. When in Al Medina, remember this is this is the last year of the Prophet's life, and in Al Medina were Abdul Rahman ibn Auf, Uthman ibn Affan, 
Amr ibn al-As. These are, in, among others, these are individuals who are considered in today's language millionaires. How can Allah's Prophet, when he has followers who are millionaires, have gone, uh, uh, accepted this type of transaction with a Yahudi in al Medina? And you tell me there is not work to be done on our hadith literature? We have a very basic principle in Islam which, which is summarized in a few words Al-Amr bil-ma'roof and Al-Nahi anil-munkar You authorize what is intrinsically known to be beneficial and good and you delegitimize what is intrinsically known to be bad and evil that's a principle. وَلْتَكُمْ مِنْكُمْ أُمَّةٌ يَدْعُونَ إِلَى الْخَيْرِ وَيَأْمُرُونَ بِالْمَعْرُوفِ وَيَنْهَوْنَ عَنْ مُنْكَرِ So, now, what should come to our mind, what is this? What's our understanding of al-ma'roof and al-munkar? Throughout all of these years of Umawi Islam, we've been... We've inherited the Ummawi Sunnah in which Al-Ma'roof, let's begin with Al-Munkar. Al-Munkar has boiled down to this, and you'll see it in the Arabian Peninsula. If a young lady, of course wearing her hijab and everything, standing on the sidewalk, speaking to a young gentleman, then what is called the morality police comes around and says, I want to see your IDs. And then if they present their IDs and it turns out that the male and the female who are speaking to each other don't belong to the same family, they are not mahram, then in their understanding of this principle of Islam, that is a munkar. What's munkar? What is it in human nature? The self-evident evil and corruptive element in which a man speaks to a woman. What is it there in public? What is it there? But that's how al-munkar has been reduced when you take social and when you take global and when you take collective efforts of mankind out of your mind, you wind up with this phobic understanding of munkar. Al-ma'roof is another Islamic terminology. What, what has become of al-ma'roof? If someone calls to prayer, in the I'm talking about the Arabian Peninsula, if someone calls to prayer and you don't go and pray, they come after you with a stick. They hit you and say, what are you doing here? You should be in the masjid. Go inside and pray. So al-ma'roof is to force people 
to go inside the masjid and pray. This is how damaged the two words al-ma'roof and al-munkar have suffered in these hundreds of years because of the Umawi monopoly of explaining Islam that these generations have inherited. Let us just take a very brief comparison between European history and Islamic history. And what we're trying to do here is we're trying to extend our thoughts beyond what is private and personal. Islam, the Quran, the Prophet did not come to organize a bathroom and a bedroom. They came to organize the world and the globe. They were meant to organize the world and the globe. In European history, the church excluded itself from any state activity simply because in the nature of the relationship between the Old and the New Testament, those who were in charge of the church, they decided that whatever is Old Testament doesn't apply to us. It's sort of been overruled by the New Testament. But still, the church was appointing the kings in Europe. They had nothing to do with running the state. But whoever's going to be the ruler in Europe had to have the approval of the church. On the other hand, in Islamic history, in all of these centuries in the past, we have our Sharia. We have laws. We are responsible for having a society that goes by the laws of Allah. No one can deny that. But, and even though our scholars in theory agree to that, what happened in real history? In real history, it was the rulers in Muslim countries who used to approve of the scholars. It's still the case today. If a certain scholar is not approved by a certain government or authority, he's sort of a marginal scholar. He could, he could be the best scholar around, but if he's not endorsed by those who have power and authority and wealth, then he's in the sidelines, he's not around, no one can hear what he's saying, he's not given the media, etc., etc., And then what happened eventually with European history, those who had power and wealth and authority, they, I'm sorry if I, if I use a loaded word, they kicked the church out of social life. They got rid of the church altogether. The church was 
making certain scientific statements which were contrary to what they discovered and investigated and researched. So they told the church, more or less, I'm not trying to be offensive to anyone, mind your own business. In Islamic history, the same thing happened with the differences of details. And those who had power and authority and wealth, they told the scholarly class, you are excluded from the decision-making process. And this explains to us much of what is happening in today's world if we care to take a closer look. So Europe got rid of the laws of the Torah. That's where they are today. I mean, they are going in every other direction. Religion is sort of obsolete. We the Muslims though, we didn't get rid of an Israeliyat. I don't want to say if Europe is ahead of us or we are behind them, but there's a maybe it was wrong to get rid of the Old Testament altogether. Maybe it was right. I'm not going to argue that. But as far as we Muslims are concerned, it's about time that we got rid of these Israeliyat. One of them is Hadithu an Bani Israel wala haraj. You can quote Bani Israel endlessly. They say that's one of the hadiths that we have in our hadith literature. You tell me there's not work to be done, and I tell you there's plenty of work to be done. There's going to be resistance to the truth and to what is just, yes. There's going to be resistance to the truth and what is just. Besides, we are an ummah of responsibilities. Allah addresses us, Ya ayyuha alladheena amanu. He's giving us response. After you read, Ya ayyuha amanu, most of the times in the Quran, Allah is giving you a responsibility. And that responsibility is not strictly a personal, individual responsibility. Along with that, it is a social, it is an ideological, it is a political, and it is an all-encompassing responsibility. I cannot save myself when everyone around me is doomed. If we don't understand the world in that sense, we pretty much have spent our life in waste. And we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for His forgiveness and for His acceptance. وأنتم على يقين بالإجابة وتوبوا إلى الله إن الله تواب رحيم
الحمد لله بجميع المحامد على جميع نعم وصلى الله وسلم على المبعوث خيرا ورحمة وهدى لكافة الأمم محمد النبي الأمي وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم Dear beloved and committed Muslims and listeners We are living at a very dangerous moment in our international affairs history and it is treason to the scriptural conscience to make believe that we are not approaching times in which many people their survival is at stake I'm talking about populations imagine if we were to skip 200 years into the future and look back at the coming 10 15 or 40 years into the future 10 15 40 years from now we are 200 years in the future and we're looking back at the coming 40 years and we see everything that is happening the orphans the widows the displaced the refugees those who are dying from hunger those who are dying because of man-made policies in the hundreds of millions I hope this is an exaggeration but my mind tells me it is not what would we say about our responsibilities what would we say 200 years in the future if we were given the chance to come back to the world today to preempt these lingering and these deadly issues we are approaching next month the Muslims of the world like they do every year will try to make their way to Mecca and Al Medina to perform their obligation of pilgrimage Al Hajj the power the wealth and the authority otherwise referred to as the kingdom that rules in the Arabian Peninsula places obstacles in front of populations that want to go to Mecca and Al Medina we're talking about a population in Syria we're talking about a population in Yemen we're talking about a population in Qatar who gives them the wherewithal to do what they are doing in impeding the movement of Muslims not only during Hajj and Umrah time but any other time of the year 
a new law has gone into effect. This week, in which the Saudi people of wealth, authority, and power are going to permit their citizens to buy firearms. Of course, there's so many restrictions. You have to apply for a permit, and then after that, there has to be a sequence of government procedures to qualify a person to carry arms in Mecca, in Al-Madina, in Al-Hijaz, in Jazirat Al-Arab, all over the place. Understanding what is happening in the real world, they want, the authorities there, want to give weapons to those who will support them when they are in, when the kingdom and its rulers are in mortal danger. That's what we're seeing by this new law that they passed, this past, that they dictated. They have no passing process over there, that they dictated this past week. There's a Saudi prince who has joined a trend now in the past couple of weeks that is protesting the raising of the price of electricity in that kingdom. Some say the electricity has been raised on the average by 260%. And this prince who has a flat in Mecca that has not been occupied since the beginning of the Ramadan, just this past week received a, uh, a bill that he has to pay something like 21,000 riyals for the usage of electricity in that 400 square meter flat that no one occupies. This gives you a sense of the injustice that is imposed even now the princes of the royal family are beginning to express their disappointment and their objection to these things going on this past week or so you know on the 24th of june they gave permission who are they to give permission but this is what they're doing they gave permission to women to drive cars it happened that one woman who's an accountant supporting a family obtained a license to drive a car and in Mecca her car was burned what does that say to you let me put this more in perspective the number the number of Saudis individuals carrying Saudi citizenship is about 20 million let's say half of them are women it's usually a little more but let's say half of them are women out of 10 million women about a hundred and ten thousand applied for permits to drive cars of course 
they are still in in the queue. They're still waiting in line to go through the driver's training lesson and all of this. But finally, this accountant woman obtained a driver's license, was driving her car and parked it. When she came out and looked at her car, it was it was a skeleton car. It was burned to its engine and to its body. This tells you the extent of the dichotomy and the schizophrenia, the social schizophrenia in that society that is attributable, if we were honest to ourselves, to the fake hadiths that emburden us up until this day. The king, there's no such concept of king in any Muslim land, but here we have a king and in of all lands, the land of the Prophet and the land of the Quran, the birthplace of Islam, he agreed. He agreed to his boss in Washington DC, you have to pump an additional 2 million barrels of oil a day. Takes orders, does he take orders from his maker? Does he take orders from his conscience? Does he take orders from a shura of Muslims? A consultative body of competent and qualified Muslim activists, politicians, etc., scholars? No. He takes orders from his boss and he knows where his boss is. Abdul Rahman al-Sudais, the, uh, the Imam in the Haram, the prayer leader in the Haram in Mecca, was in Europe in this past week and there's one piece that went viral about him. A Muslim had the integrity in one of the masjids in Europe to stand up to him and ask him, why are you killing a population in Yemen? They've been doing that for around four years now. Killing a population in Yemen, participating in other killings in other lands, financing terrorists, indoctrinating terrorists, graduating terrorists. Just yesterday, or was it today, the same person, a Sudais, who actually came to Washington DC on some other occasions in the past years, was confronted in a masjid in Switzerland by at least some Muslims are beginning to wake up, say, we're, gonna, we're not going to pray behind this type of person. And they called him Ibn Salul. They called him Munafiq. They called him a slave of Taghut. They called him anything that would come to a transparent conscience. And he had under guards. He had to sneak out and could not stand as a normal individual among a crowd of aggregate Muslims. 
And we say, Alhamdulillah, that some of these, some of these Muslims are beginning to wake up instead of blindly going into the masjid and praying behind officials who are preparing for the official endorsement of the theft of Palestine. We plead, we beseech, we implore Allah Jalla wa'ala to hasten the time. Uh, there are tricks. Right now there are discussions between Qatar and Jordan. Qatar wants to make way for 10,000 Jordanian jobs. Because some of this up and coming plan is to give Jordan to the Palestinians. And what are Jordanians going to do? Well, we can secure you. We're going to give you job opportunities and employment in the Gulf, in this new half a trillion dollar industrial city we're going to build on the borders of Jordan and Saudi Arabia and Egypt. Don't worry. All of these are reactions. Reactions to the momentum that is closing in on the thieves that have illegally possessed the Holy Land. The time of reckoning is coming for the thieves in Tel Aviv and the time of reckoning is coming for the thieves in Riyadh as well as it is coming for those who are in Washington DC. Allahumma arina al-haqqa haqqan warzuqna tiba'a wa arina al-batila batilan warzuqna ijtinaba wala taj'alhum ultabisan alayna waj'alna lilmuttaqina imama rabbana la tu'akhidna in nasina aw akhta'na ربنا ولا تحمل علينا إصرا كما حملته على الذين من قبلنا ربنا ولا تحملنا ما لا طاقة لنا به واعف عنا واغفر لنا وارحمنا أنت مولانا فانصرنا على القوم الكافرين اللهم صل وسلم وبارك على محمد وآل محمد وصل وسلم وبارك على إبراهيم وآل إبراهيم في العالمين إنك حميد مجيد بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم والعصر إن الإنسان لفي خسر إلا الذين آمنوا وعملوا الصالحات وتواصوا بالحق وتواصوا بالصبر ومن أظلم ممن منع مساجد الله أن يذكر فيها اسمه وسعى في خرابها أولئك ما كان لهم أن يدخلوها إلا خائفين لهم في الدنيا خزي ولهم في الآخرة عذاب عظيم إن الله يأمركم أن تؤدوا الأمانات إلى أهلها وإذا حكمتم بين الناس أن تحكموا بالعدل إن الله نعم يعظكم به إن الله كان سميعا بصيرا ولذكر الله أكبر والله يعلم ما تصنعون وأقم الصلاة